My name is Rahul Sons and I'm the host of the On Meaningful Work podcast and the founder of the Disruptive Business Network. And now we are back after a little bit of a hiatus. For those of you who are new to the podcast, this podcast is really about uh digging into people's journeys into how they found meaningful work. And each episode we really hope to highlight those sources of meaning that have influenced a person's calling. Uh now this episode we have a very special guest in Gordon Young. Uh Gordon is a professional ethicist and is currently the uh senior specialist educator of ethics at Victoria Police. He's also the principal of Ethological Consulting, a consultant company that he founded. Uh and he was previously uh, a lecturer at RMIT in uh, professional ethics at RMIT's prestigious School of Design. Uh he's also provided uh consulting services to St James Ethics Centre, the Australian Scout Association, Rotary Australia, the Australian Association for Professional and Applied Ethics, Laneway Learnings, and Australian Volunteers for International Development. Uh Gordon and I had a great conversation and uh we I really hope you enjoy this episode. Uh for all episodes uh please go to uh disruptivebusinessnetwork.com where you will find many conversations with some pretty incredible people. We're also about to send out a weekly newsletter so you can also sign up to that on on that website. Um now with further further ado uh here's Gordon. Enjoy. Say hi Gordon. Hello Gordon. <laughs> All righty, welcome to the On Meaningful Work podcast, my friend. Thank you very much, Rao. In January 2022, the variant we are currently in is Omicron. Are you how's everything going? Well, you doing okay? But maybe let's start with your current job. Yeah. Uh, if you're open to I mean I know there might be some sensitivities around it, but whatever no, you're no. open to talking about. <laughs> totally fine. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a new one. It's a bit of an odd one too. Mm. So it shocks me as much as anyone else. Um, you ought to see people's faces when I tell them what this new job is doing. <laughs> There's always a pause and then a, what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as if being an ethicist wasn't weird enough. So yeah, mm. first and foremost, ethicist is the title these days. Um, I think I'm a little name badge with that now. Mm. But I'm actually an ethicist with the Victorian Police Academy. Mm-hmm. So previously having come from a consulting background which in itself was weird enough but uh yeah now I'm looking at the ethics curriculum of the Victorian Police Academy with a view to revise it and then deliver it in a more uh, effective manner. So yeah, hell of a job. That's that's incredible. So would it entail more teaching or more demonstrating or what 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 would the job entail really mainly strategic at this point so they're shuffling me through the entire organization but starting with like the foundation program which is what they call the program for the recruits coming in their 31 weeks before they go out on their deployments and uh, you know do on the job training um so that's that for the first 6 months but mm-hmm. mainly sort of looking at it from a big perspective you know sitting in and all the classes reviewing the content seeing uh what's done well what can mm-hmm. be done better and then we'll deliver a revision or do a revised content with consultation so on and so forth and uh then there may be some delivery but I'm still at this point I'm thinking my delivery is probably going to be thought more focused on improving the capacity of the organization itself rather than directly to the recruits though yeah I obviously love to get back I love teaching so I'd love to get mm. back to that as well but uh might be a little bit more strategic in the nature of the job so we'll see cool um and what's what's 
What's the aim of this program? Yeah, 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 yeah. good question. Eh? Mm. So, you know what? This is actually kind of surprising to me in that I've done, this is coming from possibly the most cynical person you'll ever meet. Mm. They're actually engaging in this in genuine good faith. Mm-hmm. It's like, I've looked over some of the, um, the history of the role and th- I am not the first ethicist in this position. And you can sort of see that reflected in the curriculum from time to time. But um, yeah, they, they've tried to do this in-house originally they've had trouble since the 80s obviously everyone knows of various scandals with the victorian police i mean most recent one being the falsification of those uh breathalyzer tests mm-hmm. um which honestly as an aside not that big of an ethical challenge really that that one doesn't surprise me that much at all <laughs> but they set a quota what do you think people fake it. true yeah it's, so, it's incentives are gone yeah, yeah anyway yeah. so i mean that's been dealt with on a different level but mm-hmm. yeah they've tried to do with it in-house hasn't worked they've tried to bring people in temporarily that worked for a bit and then stopped working and so i think they've finally wrapped their heads around the idea that hey look we need someone else to come in mm-hmm. so i'm there for two years minimum mm-hmm. could be a lot longer than that um yeah so the goal really is to make sure that the training is of a good enough quality that it reaches the street so to mm-hmm. speak and mm-hmm. i mean that's good for everyone you know mm-hmm. what i mean like obviously the obvious argument especially from our end of politics is that yeah the police should be accountable to the people that they police but it's also good for the police honestly mm-hmm. anything that reduces the amount of conflict they have to deal with and avoids the uh, risks that come with that job and oh boy am i hearing about some of those mm-hmm. um it, it's good for them as well ideally what we're looking for here is a positive relationship between the police and the community mm-hmm. I, and i think we'll get into this a bit later about it but i think this is the fascinating thing about ethics because mm-hmm. it, it's not really uh, the the how do I phrase this? Uh, the inputs, I suppose, are more feelings and emotions mm. rather than, um, I, I, I suppose, hard data. Mm. And uh, and so it, it really depends. It's really a subjective thing. Oh, <laughs> no, we're going to have an argument over that. Uh, no, <laughs> it, it, yeah, this, this, is my, this is my guess. But, but You're not wrong um, in the sense that inevitably ethics is subjective. Mm. I would love if it wasn't, <laughs> yep. mm. but we and we do do our best to strive towards as much objectivity as possible. I I, I like to think of ethics as a science in that regard, in the same sense mm-hmm. that even for something as tangible as physics, you're still looking at it as a human. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And therefore, it will be subjective to some degree. But then again, that's what science is about, isn't it? It's about acknowledging that our perception of things is flawed and therefore we need to be rigorous. Mm-hmm. So you're not wrong either that feelings are a huge part of this. And mm-hmm. I will forever loathe Ben Shapiro for popularizing the statement that feeling, uh, facts don't care about your feelings because, God damn it, <laughs> ethics absolutely need to take feelings into account or they just implode. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, it is a very interesting experience, especially when you put that into application, yeah. Sure. Okay, so park that for now. We'll come back to that. Sure. But let's let's go back to, to you and tell me a little bit, like, about yourself. Like, where were you born? Where were you brought up? Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, no, I'm Victorian, born and raised. Um, mm-hmm. Eastern suburbs boy out in Ringwood, So uh, which was a little itsy-wincy, a little bit tougher back in the day, but, you mm-hmm. know, not that bad. Um, you know, public school education, the whole sort of thing out in Ringwood Secondary. Um, that I actually point to as being an incredibly valuable experience for me. Public school uh, or yeah. school in general? Public uh, school, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ringwood Secondary was always a good public school in the sense that it offered a lot of curriculum, uh, extracurricular activities, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Teachers were empowered to care um, and put a little bit of extra effort in and rewarded for doing so. But mm-hmm. uh, it was also 
uh, how to phrase this, sufficiently diverse that you couldn't just be in a little bubble. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you got exposed to everyone from every walk of life. Mm-hmm. And back in the nineties, it was, yeah, that was, there was some rough stuff in there. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Bit a bit of a drug issue through there, as you can probably mm. imagine. I mean, freaking Croydon was the heroin capital of the east back mm. in the day, and yeah, I mean, glad to see that under control now. But still, um, but yeah, getting a bit more of a understanding of different backgrounds and different people mm-hmm. it meant a lot. Mm-hmm. It did. Graduated from that. Um, lucky to come from a you know a family that could support me to you know try and experiment a little bit and try different things and find things that worked mm. for me I mean Christ knows they didn't give me a philosophy course back then. <laughs> I mean, how, b- before the how were you at school were you a good student oh, I was fine I was yeah. a good boy you know what yeah. I mean yeah the fledglings of the being an ethicist were in there and that I'd started to sort of figure out in the back of my head that being a good person gets you privileges mm-hmm. uh, that's a very cynical statement incidentally for anyone thinking <laughs> <that>. <laughs> anyone listening to that but yeah, no, no, no. I was, I was the good boy. Mm-hmm. I wasn't very rebellious in my teenage years. It was twenties when I figured that bit out. But yep. <laughs> w- w- did you get in trouble for anything at school? Nah, yeah. I hang with a sort of middle of the ground group in the sense that again, a bit of a diversity in there. We do stupid shit around the school, but we'd never get really caught for it. And <laughs> again, benefit of being known as a good kid is that if mm-hmm. you did get caught, you got the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could talk your way out of it. Not that it really needed to that much, but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, no, just pretty straight laced with high school, and um, yeah, my rebellion didn't really start until uni. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so did you go straight to uni after high school, or did you? Uh, yep. 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 Did the <laughs> by the books thing straight laced? Like I said, <laughs> graduated with a what was the enter score? I don't even know if it's called an enter score anymore. 87.5 that's something like very that. very respectable. Oh, well, thank Congratulations. Yeah. Freaking well, better have been considering how much I threw myself at it. Jesus. Yeah. I took it fully seriously. Mm. I thought it was going to define my future. Christ knows if it did or not. Hard to tell. Mm. But um, yeah, I do look back on the old inter-system. You know, that I, I'll still say this. I've done a lot of stuff in my life and I will still rank the VCE exams as the single hardest thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. I've done a combination of things that turned out to be a hell of a lot harder than that. But the VCE exams, mm-hmm. you know, as a singular undertaking, were insane. Mm-hmm. I remember the English exam? We had to do... Three essays in an hour and a half. I, I did mine in India, so right, was, yeah, different yeah. sort of standard. But yeah, but but I agree with you in that it was probably one of the hardest things I've done. But for the for probably the not the right reasons in that it was just yeah. enormously stressful and you know anyway. I remember yeah. having been told, oh, now you got to choose your uh, the course you want to put in for, and being like, oh, you yeah. want me to decide my entire course of my future <laughs> yeah. at eighteen. <laughs> Right the off the back of that exam that I was... 70 years of your life. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if there's anything I tell mm. people of a younger age group these days is don't stress that one. Mm. You've got plenty of time to try other things. Absolutely, but yeah. Yeah, it's a bit annoying how they put so much pressure on you at that age. But, um, yeah, no, I went off and uh, <laughs> the irony being is I ended up going for a course. I looked for the environmental... Man- I nearly joined the Air Force, mm-hmm. hilariously. Hmm. Uh, I actually got Top Gun? The Top Gun? Yes, <laughs> flat out, flat out. I wanted to be a pilot. Don't know why, I think I just wanted to fly. Um, yeah. And at that age, uh, proto-ethicist that I was, I was already looking for uh, answers. Mm-hmm. That's always been the drive with ethicist. It's always been, I want a bloody rule set, please. Someone tell me how this works. Mm-hmm. And at that age, the but, Air but Force provided an easy answer. 
Yeah, it's funny you mention that because say a lot of the because coming from the tech sector, sector, a lot mm. of you know engineers and um, and coders, whoever that I've spoken to, it's it's that same sort of feeling, but with mechanical or, or electrical totally. objects. Yeah. In that, I need to figure out how this works. Like I, I can't sleep unless I know how this works. Yeah. But for you, it's more um, it's more human in a sense. Or yeah, um, different levels of strategic versus tactical. I think it's like mm. ultimately it's the same thing though. It's problem solving, isn't it? It's mm. like this doesn't make any sense. Let's make it make sense. Yeah. You know, impose mm. your will upon the void, so to speak. But um, yeah, no, I love puzzles and problem solving and that sort of thing. And I see a strong uh, link to that with the tech sector as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not good at it, but I have a very strong interest in the technology sector as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maths, man, just not my thing. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, definitely. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah. so after your twelve, um, you you went straight to uni. What did you study? Social science with an environmental specialization. Mm-hmm. Uh, just flat out, of course, was called social science environment um, uh, back at RMIT. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I chose it because it was the non it was the highest enter score course for a non scientific environmental degree, mm-hmm. which was pretty low as it turned out. It was about seventy two. <laughs> <laughs> so which, you were more than qualified. Oh, yeah. in, mm. Enter my first little experience of cynicism, going like, mm. why exactly did I work so hard on that score? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so mm. it wasn't quite around to gaming the system yet. So. What what was if if you remember what was the decision making process for selecting that? Was it? Oh, I already had a pretty strong care for the environment at that age. It was mm-hmm. always a passion. Uh, put that down to my parents. Plus, um, they were never really activists or anything like that. But mm-hmm. um, they were hugely involved in the Scout Association, and so we were out all the time. I mean, like practically every long weekend we were mm-hmm. hiking. So what association was that? Scouts. Oh, Scouts. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Formerly yeah. Boy Scouts, no longer, of course. It's yep. uh, been co-gendered mm-hmm. since the 70s, but uh, that's mm-hmm. how a lot of people know it. Um, yeah, and so big environmental sort of angle in that, if not an activist one, then a sort of a you know conservationist one, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think that just sort of sparked something in me. A couple of teachers in my um, um, primary school and secondary school education sort of got me thinking about it and you know, that sparked a good old existential panic when climate change came up, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I figured, what the hell, lean into something I care about. Mm-hmm. Um, pure coincidence, don't get me wrong. At mm. that point, I didn't really have the slightest idea of what I wanted to do, but um, I thought, nah, screw it, we'll make a go of it. So when did that course, seminal moment for me. You know, this is funny, actually, because with a social science course, for the first year, you have a lot of common core subjects. Mm-hmm. So we had social work classes, we had planning classes, urban planning classes, uh, psychology classes, and... Uh, Man, that high school attitude of, uh, why are we learning this? I don't need to know this. I'm here mm. to study the environment management. Why am I learning about sociology? Yeah. <laughs> the most definitive experience in my entire life was a class called the uh, Brief History of Ideas. Mm-hmm. And I went into that with the biggest sneer on my face. That sounds almost philosophical, was it? Well, that's yeah. exactly what it was. And yeah. That's exactly what it said on the tin. It was, yeah. we're going to run you through a few political philosophies and ideas mm-hmm. as a sort of a primer for additional stuff. It's a sort of thing that would be cut out of a uni curriculum so fast these days if it wasn't mm-hmm. turning up you know, good results or a profit or whatever. But it's this, the, like this fluffiest sounding thing mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. It was 
it blew my mind. It mm. blew my goddamn mind. Like I'd heard of you know ideas like fascism before, but I never actually studied them. Mm-hmm. Wikipedia mm. wasn't around in those days. What was that? Two thousand and four, and I mean it might have been in proto versions, but mm-hmm. you know this is still the time period where people are telling you not to trust anything online yeah. because oh blah blah blah. Trust the fax machine. Yeah right. <laughs> Do you remember getting resources at a library? Oh yeah, yeah. Painful Christ. <laughs> Uh, and still relying on the book to be any good. So, hmm. yeah. So I studied that, ended up completing that. So, so what was about that course that blew your mind? Was it just the new ideas? Or oh, yeah, being introduced to a set of ideas in a critical fashion. Mm-hmm. You know, like here is a summary of those ideas, but in a relatively neutral way. So that was like, I just had to re-examine my worldview so many times in such a short period of time mm-hmm. that it really started to deconstruct a lot of my assumptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a really fundamental level because we mm-hmm. weren't talking about um, managing the environment in a tactical, practical sense, which was what I was more focused on. It um, it made me question why we were doing this in the first place and how we got there in the first place. Also, the first time we got introduced to economics, mm-hmm. which has been a huge part of my thinking ever since then. Mm-hmm. Neoliberal economics. <laughs> and do, do you remember, was there one assumption that was shattered that... <laughs> <laughs> That you still think about? Oh, uh, God, yes. Um, yeah. The assumption, oh, they're very teenage, you know, mm. the assumption that people knew what they were doing, <laughs> that was, mm. whoa, that was a rough one. Um, mm. It didn't really come to fruition until a couple of years later when, you know, you get into the professional environment and start seeing people in operation. I don't think I really sunk in completely until I met my first member of parliament. Mm-hmm. But that was where the seed was sown. It's like, hang on a second. <laughs> To, I, I thought people knew what they were doing. Yeah. Mm. Sort of, I don't know. It's just a natural thing for a child or even a teenager to assume that if you get elected as a member of parliament or you're captain of industry or something like that or a uni professor, mm-hmm. then you must just be kind of special. Mm-hmm. Like surely they wouldn't put you in a position like that if you didn't know what you were doing. Yep. Well, mm. shit. <laughs> people are really good at pretending, I think. Well, fake it till you make it. I mean, yeah. I've ended up doing exactly the same thing. But on the other hand, it's like, yeah, that mm. destabilized young Gordon just an incy wincy bit. <laughs> <laughs> how, how so? Like, oh, what did that change for you? Was it? Oh man, so many things just came up for grabs all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a terrifying way. It's like you sort of assume that the institutions of society had some sort of objective merit to them. Mm-hmm. Like you could make assumptions, you could rely on things. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like you mm-hmm. could be like. Uh, you know, white boy that I was, sorry, up middle class white boy that I was, well spoken mm-hmm. on that, I could always trust the police. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'd never had an experience where I couldn't trust the police. Mm-hmm. Everything had reconfirmed, not to mention the social narrative, the media narrative, and this is before any sort of transparency from social media. Um, yeah, that was just the thing. Trust mm-hmm. the police. Mm-hmm. You can always trust the police. And suddenly... I, the idea, the very simple idea was introduced to me that, hey, maybe all of these institutions are just sort of making it up as they go. Mm-hmm. And there goes any capacity to have faith in anything. Mm-hmm. And that brings into question everything you've ever been taught, like mm-hmm. ever, absolutely ever. And not only that, they introduced me a whole bunch of alternative ways of thinking about things. And suddenly I'm sitting here going like, whoa, hang on. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> And you know, the, again, this took a long time to come to fruition, but that's so the, the 
the biggest one of all, I think, was the idea that my perspective on all of this might be just as valid as anyone else's, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. meant I suddenly got a license, whether I realized that or not, to go out and just challenge absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. Absolutely everything. Why the hell not? Yeah. Did it have the reverse effect in that, in the sense that your perspective might be BS as well, and that oh Christ, yes. Yeah. I mean, that was the first yeah. thing to fall. Mm. I mean, and it put. Thank God, I never joined the Air Force. Mm. That's what I was looking for. If I'm perfectly honest, I would have thrived in the military at least for a couple of years, mm-hmm. uh, because I wanted meaning. Mm-hmm. I was looking for meaning in the world, and mm-hmm. the military was like, no problems. We've mm-hmm. got that right here mm-hmm. they would have removed my values set and replaced it with their own with no resistance whatsoever and mm-hmm. i would have swallowed that hook line and sinker at least for a few years mm-hmm. and uh yeah and suddenly yeah so i'm sitting there looking at all this realizing the institutions of the world aren't as strong as i thought they were mm-hmm. and therefore well my understanding of things is completely dog shit <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh okay right back to the drawing board yeah so yeah that uh, yeah, the environment sort of held up through that process, oddly enough, is something mm. I cared about because it was, if anything, it made it even more terrifying. Like, but this, this is where I uh, point right back to my anxiety disorder developing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what do you mean no one's in control? <laughs> what do you mean we don't know what we're doing? Oh, yeah. Jesus. But yeah, first of many existential crises. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, so from that, you, you, you managed to finish your degree and yep. Yeah. You know, it, this is the funny thing. Someone's always pointed out, like, and they're not wrong. People point this out to me on occasion is that philosophy is a rich man's pursuit. Mm-hmm. You're completely right. Look, if I had to, had to put bread on the table uh, for myself or my family, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have had time to play with those ideas. It would mm-hmm. have been right back to getting shit done. Mm-hmm. But because I was supported by my family, and I'm not in the slightest complaining about that or saying that that's a bad thing, that was a brilliant thing and more people should have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I had the opportunity to explore those ideas and ask those questions and without having to worry about, you know, literal food. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I didn't even really have to work if I didn't want to, but, like, obviously the family lent on me to do so for, you know, mm-hmm. discipline reasons and good on them. Yep. But, um, yeah, it was uh, actually interesting. At the same time, I started up a job as a builder's labourer as a part-time job, and that was the perfect yin-yang thing. Yeah, you yeah. Know, sitting around in an academic environment, climbing right up your own ass, <laughs> and uh, surrounded by you know people that were doing the same thing. And again, I love mm. academia; it's a great thing. But then spending my weekdays like moving a pile of rubbish to another pile of rubbish, mm. and working with people that were doing a thing to get paid to pay, put food on that table, or to mm. you know. They lived in the weekends, you mm-hmm. know, whereas mm-hmm. I was trying to live in the weekdays. Mm-hmm. And But having that contrast and seeing the world from that different perspective kept me grounded. Mm-hmm. You know, it would have been so easy to go off on flights of fancy about, oh, how the world should work from a freaking 19-year-old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, and yeah, you want to experiment in that space, but you've got to understand how people actually live and what they, they deal with day to day. Yeah. And then so I graduated that and then it was off to professional work. <laughs> Cool. So, so b- before that, like you, you spoke about how this course sort of blew your mind and shattered mm. your assumptions, and you know, maybe say tracing back earlier in your life, mm. do you recall was there an incident or you know or something else maybe that say between like when you were a young kid, did you have your mind blown in any way? Was it? <laughs> yeah, 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 I did. Uh, without getting too heavy about it, mm. lots of bullying. Mm-hmm. Now, the trouble with that, and my mum will actually cop to this directly, is that she raised me too nice, mm-hmm. right? I was raised to be uh, 
well what you're meant to be, mm-hmm. right? Like you're meant to be kind, you're meant to be generous, yada, yada, yada. Not on not helping on top of that was the fact that I was a pretty sensitive kid. Oh, I'm still a sensitive person, if we're honest. Mm-hmm. But that is a not a good combination to dump a kid into a primary school environment. Mm-hmm. And... In a public primary school environment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, I mean, I don't know if it would have made a lot of difference, frankly. It sounds like some of these private schools are pretty horrendous as well in different ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, you wouldn't deal with classism in a public school, but, you know, on the other hand, you get plenty of other trouble. Mm. I, now, God knows why people have rough home lives. I mean, 12 years, don't know what the fuck they're doing at the best of times. Excuse the language. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, and so I think that was probably the first thing that blew my mind is, hang on, I'm doing what I was told to do. Mm-hmm. These were the rules. I'm following the rules. Mm-hmm. It's not working for me, clearly. Mm-hmm. Now, you couldn't have articulated it at that age, but that was my first experience with uh, <laughs> cosmic unfairness. I don't mm-hmm. know. With the rules not working, with mm-hmm. the institutions not holding up, and mm-hmm. the teachers not coming to my head either, mm-hmm. largely from in fairness to them, they probably didn't notice it happening. Um, and so, yeah, that was that was the first existential crisis. And, mm, uh, wow, that's pretty... That's yeah. pretty Hardcore painful one, right? It was not fun. Yeah. I mean, look, broad scale of things, it was pretty mediocre as, you know, childhood trauma goes, but it was pretty central to me. Yep. And mm-hmm. it did very much set up that um, that core of that thinking of rules versus reality mm-hmm. and doing what you're meant to do and being a good person doesn't always work out. Yeah. Which has been very seminal to my thinking ever since. Yeah. And, and I suppose at the time, how did you... Um, correlate the two in the sense that these are the rules I've been told follow the rules everything be fine and this is reality uh, there's and only two ways of dealing with that mm-hmm. either you rebel against the rules or you uh, turn it on yourself mm-hmm. and I turned it on myself because it was a nice kid mm-hmm. I uh, yeah blame myself tried mm-hmm. harder mm-hmm. made it worse <laughs> yep uh, self recriminations a bastard and mm-hmm. yeah that um turning it in on on yourself personally and yeah in some ways what i do these days is very much a big middle finger to that mindset Mm -hmm. you know a rebellion against that mindset which is still in there somewhere plenty Mm -hmm. of money into therapy i'll tell you that (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you know that's my issue to deal with and it's in some ways look Mm. i think back on those days and like some of those uh, experiences and at the end of the day, if you're going to be too self-confident or not self-confident enough, mm-hmm. God knows I'd like that happy middle ground, but good luck with that. God knows what sort of upbringing achieves that. But um, I would definitely take too self-confident any day of the week mm-hmm. because it drives you to self-improvement. Mm-hmm. Too self-confident, not so much. Yep. Mm. Yeah. If there's any one thing I end up dealing with. You know, in fact, I'll, tell you, I'll, I'll go this far. If there's one great evil in the world that I'd like to uh, see gone, it's... Uh, certainty mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. nothing does as much damage as certainty you know yeah. you, someone running around self-doubting themselves never going to cause anywhere mm. near the same amount of drama as uh, a person that is absolutely certain that they're doing the right thing mm. I can't even begin to imagine having that mindset and thank God for that mm. you know, the sheer amount of devastation you could cause I think also like maybe a corollary to that is uh, like there's a Zen Buddhist saying of you know like an expert has has uh, I, w- I wouldn't say one mindset but one option or an expert mindset has you know one option whereas a beginner's mindset has infinite options mm. so mm. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, and God mm-hmm. knows we see that with siloing and work environments. We see it with, mm-hmm. uh, well, with beloved, my beloved academia, but yeah, people aren't entirely wrong when they say they don't have real world experience in many cases. It's mm-hmm. like, a, it's not, that's not necessarily true, but if a person specializes to the point of multiple doctorates mm-hmm. in one area, if you're a professor in one specific space, by definition, you're not experienced in other areas, mm-hmm. you know, and it's really easy to start seeing the world exclusively through that lens. Mm-hmm. You know, what's that saying? Like, you give a man a hammer, the world's made of nails. Yeah. But also in a sense, especially in this day and age, that kind of makes you fragile in that mm. the world is changing so quickly that, that that one area of expertise could be redundant. In yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And whether mm-hmm. we like it or not, eventually, like, just between age and just um, what gets published and what doesn't get published, there is an inherent conservatism to everyone. And we sort of eventually find ourselves clinging to an idea that we like mm-hmm. that might no longer be true mm-hmm. or at least become less flexible to the nuances of its application. So, mm. yeah, 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 it's definitely got to stay dynamic. It's, uh, I do like to think of myself as a generalist despite the specialisation in ethics. At the end mm. of the day, ethics is not useful or even really that complicated until it's applied to a practical context. Mm-hmm. And I don't know a damn thing about that practical context. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, policing, for God's sake, God knows I've never had any policing experience or even anything close to it. So, yeah, yeah the only reason I'm going to be good at this job is because I'm going to pay a lot of attention to those who have. Mm-hmm. So, so w- I think before our tangent, we left off where you, you, you got your first job after uni. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> first job right out of uni was a hell of an experience from a business management perspective because mm. that man was a shyster. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he <laughs> I can't even believe it in retrospect. He taught one of the subjects in our final year of university. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was operating under the assumption of, well, he's a university lecturer. He must know what he's doing. It was called environmental pollution management. We didn't get taught a goddamn thing about environmental pollution management. We got taught how to use his uh, accounting software, his environmental auditing software. And at the time, I was Cheeky. Thinking, wow, yeah. this is interesting. It must be very relevant. Hmm. Sure enough, what's he do? He recruits half of our damn class into his business the next year. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, wow, this is hmm. fantastic. What a generous person volunteering. I didn't even realize he got paid to be a lecturer. Anyway, anyway wandering in there eyes wide like just mm. oh this is fantastic uh yeah he did not pay our super i didn't get paid for three weeks straight on one occasion but funnily enough at that age you don't well you know if you provided you got a little bit of savings you didn't worry that much about mm. because i'm like oh i'm gonna get paid eventually it's not that big of a deal hopeless hopeless just the business model as it was this is the <laughs> the salad days of the environmental movement this Mm. is right after Al Gore released uh, Inconvenient Mm. Truth it's when Mm. it was first hitting the public consciousness this Mm. was well peak relevance peak panic Mm -hmm. the opposition hadn't really kicked off that much yet not in a sophisticated way and so yeah there was a bit of backwards and forwards but it was maximum public interest People are still aware of it and they're much more on board with it now, but at the same time, it's kind of like that horrific reality rather than a fresh new thing to think about. Mm-hmm. And so there was money. There mm-hmm. was a lot. And mm-hmm. the Victorian government gave this fellow a, a cash to run a program called Vic 1000, whereby he would audit 1,000 small to medium businesses uh, free for them mm-hmm. uh, and assess their energy usage, water usage, and waste profile, and then give them recommendations to improve. Mm. On paper, absolutely brilliant. In practice, just garbage. Just, <laughs> just 
hot garbage. And the fact that mm. even I saw through that in the first six months was like mm. really, really damning. Mm. We used to do follow-ups, right? Like the assessments were incredibly thorough, like mm. needlessly thorough. We counted every electrical using item in the entire damn building. Fascinating job, incidentally, because you had to go through every inch of that business. Mm-hmm. The things we found in basements, man. My God. So, so you're physically in premises. Yeah. 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 That mm. one was free for them, so they didn't mind so much. But we found a goddamn basement one time with a pentagram on the floor. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, okay. Illuminati. I'm, uh, I'm leaving. It's real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently it was used as a uh, band room, but I'm okay. still not buying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah anyway. Good. Was Nicholas Cage there hunting for treasure? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I refused to go into the door, into the room. I was like, they're going to swing that door shut, and that's mm. the enemy. But uh, yeah, anyway, but that, there was no tie between the audit and any actual outcome because mm-hmm. there was no buy in. I mean, you hand them this freaking tome of an assessment at the end of it, just being like, yeah, he's in a complete corporate level assessment of your environmental profile. Mm. <laughs> what do we do with that? Mm. There was no buy in, there was no engagement, there was no effective strategization. But. The idea it was good faith in the sense that the guy was genuinely believed in what he was doing. It was mm. just garbage. And that was my first experience of uh, a person with authority not having the, being so ideologically committed to what they were trying to achieve that they mm. started to ignore the reality of what they were accomplishing. Mm. Okay. That man left the country about an hour and a half ahead of a civil suit. <laughs> And he left with his wife's father's money mm. and left her behind. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, so I took him through the Fair Work Commission, which was, mm. again, my first experience of having to deal with a shitty employer, but that was very interesting. And your first job off the ranks. First so. job off the bloody ranks, man. Yeah. Unbelievable. But there's a bit of an alumnus of people that work mm. there, and we still occasionally catch up and jaw about the old days. Oh, nice. Yeah, but that was, you know, they say you learn more from a bad employer than a good one, and well, mm. yep. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? Good old Doug. Ah, thinking of you, Doug, in Village Green, you dickhead. <laughs> Fascinating man. Yeah. Also, my first experience of the time where you could walk into a meeting with a fella and with a huge list of very specific and well thought out grievances, mm. and then walk out 30 minutes later going, like, Yep, that was great. Fantastic. Mm. Finally, feel like I've been heard and things are going to happen. And then 15 minutes later, be going, like, Hang on. <laughs> he didn't commit to anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, Fox, silver tongue on that, man. Mm. Very impressive. So, how long did that last? How long did that job last? About nine months. Um, okay. Yeah, before I blew through my welcome. Yeah. Uh, I actually found a flaw in his contract. He just he annoyed me to the point where I started paying attention. And this was my first experience with vindictiveness as well. Mm. I got through that contract, found some flaws, and, and took him through the Fair Work Commission and ended up getting a nice check out of that. Mm. But yeah, I moved on to another one, which was an even weirder placement for me. This is the Australian Industry Group, mm-hmm. aka the Business Lobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, for an environmentalist, that is a weird place to work, man. Yeah. But again, naivete of the day, I was working on the assumption that, um, well, this is who you should be working with, right? Mm-hmm. We want to work on you know environmental outcomes. Who's better place to do that than the people running the businesses? That's not wrong. It just shows a complete lack of understanding of politics. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, the job itself, this is in 2008 eight and this is in the middle of like just the tail end of the millennium drought mm-hmm. and were you, were you on Australia right about that? I was yeah. yeah yeah so you remember it was bad man yeah. like this is like also the GFC I suppose 
just before okay just before yeah. this is still economic going okay economy mm. going okay but this is like the drought we were down to 20 percent in the thompson mm-hmm. and the last 10 percent is mud mm. <laughs> i remember ballarat nearly literally ran out of water on one yeah, occasion yeah, yeah. like showering mm. with buckets people yes. dobbing each other and people think that you know the current lockdown provisions of gestapo you should have mm. seen people during that drought mm. man you saw green grass you reported wow it was rough Mm. not wrong either it was gotten really freaking dangerous for a bit there mm. uh yeah anyway so i was working with large industry members to help them introduce a new bit of regulation that had come in which required them to find water savings mm-hmm. uh very very soft approach taken there but effective mm. and i won't say that the australian industry group was doing it in bad faith either you know, they, they genuinely put some money and time into it mm-hmm. And it was a good job for me coming out. First time engaging with businesses, did a lot of walkthroughs of businesses and got a really... It was very interesting. I mean, like wax emulsifiers. Mm-hmm. I always think of that job. Went out there. You know, Who would have even thought of that as a business? They mix wax with an emulsifier so it can be shipped. Mm. Because you can't... Wax is not soluble. You can't... Unless you keep it hot, you can't turn it into a liquid. It won't mix with water obviously and so they had to find a way of liquefying it so that it could be moved efficiently hmm. there's a whole business in that the factory was nothing but emulsifying wax yeah it's this is, I think I'm like what the fuck <laughs> what is this but that's the, the economy is run by businesses such as it's, such as those that you don't even yeah it's the thing inside the thing inside the thing that you don't even really reckon. gave me a very interesting yeah. cross section of different businesses and uh, there was a an industrial laundry that did nothing but the linens from airplanes can you wow. imagine that like mm. absolutely absolutely no disrespect meant by this comment but it fascinates me how a person goes to work every day under the function of I launder airline napkins. I mean, mm. I mean, look, for the worker, I get it. Like, you know, wage is a wage. But like, how do you start a business in that? Like, <laughs> it, I mean, it's... That's it, a whole other podcast series. Fascinating, <laughs> isn't it? But yeah, it gives you a bit of a cross-section of how mm. things actually function. But yeah... Interestingly, this was in exactly the t- same time frame as uh, this exact same group was the key component of lobbying to dredge the bay. Mm-hmm. And on one memorable occasion, they got me to sit in on a meeting between some very high powerful individuals to take notes. Mm-hmm. I was there to take the minutes for the meeting because someone else couldn't do it. And so, can you imagine, I, well, geez, well, I would have been about 23, 22 at this point. Mm arc environmentalist passionate passionate like mm. actively campaigning against this exact same thing in my private life sitting in to take minutes on a meeting of the people that were central to it happening mm-hmm. and still naive at this point in the sense that i didn't see the political dimensions to it but that was absolutely mind-blowing for the very simple reason that it wasn't a bunch of people in cows mm. cackling over the environmental devastation they were causing mm. that's what i always sort of imagined mm. you know how do you work for a coal company and not sit there going like ha 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 i am an evil person i'm extracting <laughs> money out of the welfare of people of course they're not like that yeah it was an it's, actual shock it's sort of like i suppose it's a type of mental gymnastics that you have to go through to again a huge seminal moment for what i do now it mm. was like these people think they're doing the right thing. Mm. And when you listen to the way they made their arguments 
within the context of that room, it did sort of make sense. Hmm. They were sitting there saying, this is one of the most extensive... Like, they were justifying it to each other, Hmm. saying this is one of the most extensive and expensive environmental assessments that has ever been undertaken Hmm. in Australia. And it approved it. Hmm. And therefore... Of course, we've seen the consequences of that. Sorrento foreshore no longer exists. I mean, mm. All the shit that people said was going to happen happened. Of course, it bloody did. Mm. But, but they ticked the boxes. Yeah. So can I ask, uh, was it around this time that, uh, if you recall, mm. that certain rumbling started to come up of, <gasps> of what am I doing with my life? Or <laughs> <laughs> this is absolutely. Absolutely. This, this is, is not where I'm supposed to be or, you know. Did, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, no, exactly. Mm-hmm. Around about this same time, because I was sort of like, I was like the, uh, I, I'd call myself a climber in mm-hmm. that, and that I don't mean that in a complimentary way. That was me trying to get on top. I still mm-hmm. had very much a business, like a professional mindset of like, I've got to talk to the right people, got to meet the right people, mm-hmm. get, get up the ranks and work from within. Yeah, right. So would you say you're ambitious? Oh, yeah. yeah. I still am, man. Yeah. I just, let's be mm-hmm. honest. It's just sort of morphed into what it's trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. But all of my friends and colleagues who were in a similar mindset were working for consultancies mm-hmm. and they were making good money mm-hmm. and they were working in very interesting projects and they were all being ignored. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them was being ignored. Mm-hmm. And In the sense that their ideas weren't heard? or In the mm-hmm. sense that there was no objective to what they were doing. So, for example, one Mm. of them would be sitting there talking about, uh, we used to have this thing called net gain when it came to native uh, vegetation clearance. Mm -hmm. Oh, the Liberal Party gutted that, incidentally. Fun fact. (laughs) But the simple idea was is that if you clear native vegetation for development, that is permitted, Mm -hmm. unless it's, you know, significant, uh, usually even then. But you had to revegetate another piece of land to a not just equivalent level, but slightly better. Hence, mm-hmm. net gain, right? Mm-hmm. Nice idea. It didn't really work that well in practice, but it was a nice idea. Better than what we have now. But these people, would, the, my colleagues, my friends, would do this assessment. They'd get in there. They'd be botanists. They'd be land assessors. They'd get into this piece of land that was to be cleared. They'd catalogue it in immense detail. They'd make a whole bunch of recommendations about where you, what you should keep, what you can clear, how you can minimise the impact, where you can revegetate, how you can do that to make sure it's of highest benefit. I mean, yeah, sure, maybe, you know, your, you know, like hardcore um, greenies might argue that you should never participate in the first place. But to me, this was like perfect working inside the system. Mm-hmm. You can't stop development, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, not plausibly. No one's ever managed it in any case. So work inside the system to maximize the benefit, minimize the harm. Mm-hmm. What happened to their reports? They got shelved mm-hmm. and they did what they wanted because the only yep. reason those reports existed was to tick a box. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yep. I mean, I go mm. through these businesses and tick, like do this work with them, and then they sort of looked at me and went, "Nah," and you're like, "Shit." Yeah. <laughs> like, and this is where the ethics started. Yeah. Because mm. I travelled the year after that, and again, talk about an incredible change for me as a human being. Because mm. taking that year off to just basically sit with yourself and think, mm. in different contexts, sure, and with a lot of alcohol in me too. But mm-hmm. at the same time, when you get that otherwise, big advocate for a gap year for people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I realized that what I was dealing with 90% of the time wasn't actually most of the things that people point to when it comes to environmental management. It wasn't cost. Mm-hmm. It wasn't cost at all. These people have plenty of cash. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the solutions we proposed were extremely focused on the economic outcomes for that same reason. 
but they didn't do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Solar's the obvious one. Solar pays itself back. Yeah, it takes 10 years and the upfront cost is expensive, but it's a business. Mm-hmm. It's an investment. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't do it. And what I realized is what I'm dealing with 90% of the time isn't actually cost. It's not even practicalities or logistics. It's ideas. They're opposed to them because mm-hmm. they don't believe it'll work or because mm-hmm. they don't feel good about the idea. Or they have a certain... I'm just guessing it, but they have a certain value system and yeah. a certain mindset and a certain, um, you know, they're, they're brought up in a certain way. Absolutely. That that prevents them from thinking that. Exactly. Yeah. And or they're inside a system that rewards a certain way of thinking. And mm-hmm. I mean, how the hell do you get to an executive level in a bank, for example, if you don't think banking is a good thing? Mm-hmm. If you don't think it's not just a good thing, but a great thing, mm-hmm. you know, like it's just not going to happen. You've got to be passed by the system to get that far but yeah and mm. so after a bit of reflection i came back and did the uh <laughs> least practical thing i've ever done in my life the worst on paper career decision ever made and i studied <laughs> a master's of professional ethics <laughs> <laughs> wow what were I, you thinking i was shocked that it even <laughs> existed and you know man i'd still i still understand entirely why someone mm. would look at that and go that that is absolutely ridiculous what is wrong with you but, um, okay, firstly, what, what drew you to that? Uh, one year of traveling and a highly philosophical mindset, pretty much. Um, and, and how did you come across that? Were you just looking uh, at courses? Or? Yeah, just yeah. curious. Yeah. And I'd always played with ideas and like, like trying to figure out, and again, right back to that uh, youth environment of being like, I was promised that if I followed these rules, I'd be treated well, and I am not. Mm-hmm. What's going on? Mm-hmm. you know and then follow that up with different experiences that exposure in university about brief history of ideas and all the different contradictory ideas mm-hmm. and just a real emotional need for an explanation mm-hmm. still drives me now to be honest with you i just want a bloody explanation mm-hmm. and yes i know it's not coming anymore but still yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i thought well worth checking mm-hmm. i was looking mainly at masters of like environmental management just you know the usual career path but it wasn't doing it for me, mm. largely because of my experiences prior, one with a shyster and the other with an incredibly, well, not cynical, but a political environment. And I thought, well, I can't remember the exact mindset, but I just Googled it you mm. know, and checked it out. And Ma- Melbourne University, right mm-hmm. there, Masters of Professional and Applied Ethics. And I'm like, screw Sign it. Sign me up. <laughs> screw it. Was literally the mindset mm. was screw it. I don't, mm. What the hell? Let's just, whatever. I've already got a career. I mean, it had a big pause to it, but mm. incidentally, this was around about the time that I yeah. started struggling with chronic <laughs> unemployment. <laughs> no, not really. I mean, I just had a lot of uh, jobs that ended and then suddenly, you know, I had to spend a couple of months trying to find something else. And mm-hmm. it's more accurately, this is around about the time that the Liberal government came in and suddenly there was no more money for the environment. Wasn't mm-hmm. <sighs> but it also, it kind of bring, brings... Back to that, I don't know if you've seen Steve Jobs' Stanford commencement speech. Mm, I have actually, yeah. And the thing that your story reminds me of is how we, or this this particular segment of it is how he says, you know, rather than following something practical, follow follow your curiosity. Mm. And he he did this calligraphy course huh. just because he was curious. And, but while he was okay. while he was in college, like he he audited this calligraphy calligraphy course hmm. and then years later when he was designing the operating system for the for the macbook hmm. that's where he got all the ideas for the fonts 
Ah, interesting. And then Bill Gates and Microsoft just lifted those ideas, and that's why we have <laughs> really? fonts. It's because Steve Jobs did that calligraphy course. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating. Mm. I mean, I look back at my own meager little life, and you look at all of the little... Sorry. Sorry, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you look back in your own life, I mean, I'm sure everyone does this. Mm. You look back on your own life and those decision points... I mean, they're all decision points, but like those ones oh, in inflection particular, points, yeah. where it could have gone in a wildly different direction. Yeah, yep. You know, you date someone else and suddenly your entire life looks different. Mm. You, you know, do a different uni course. You, you know, in this case, the choice of that master's was very much on a whim. Mm. Very much. There was absolutely nothing stopping me from either direction. Mm. And I went with the ethics course and I <laughs> dare to say in a bit of a different place than I would have been otherwise. <laughs> so how was that course? Was it? Oh, it was fantastic. Mm. It was everything I hoped it would be, to be honest mm. with you. And yet, at the same time, hopelessly <laughs> impractical <laughs> in the sense that I'm sitting here going like, I have no way. I went in mm. fully expecting this. I went in fully aware that there was no chance of me ever getting a job in this space, mm. ironically enough. Mm. But I thought it would enhance my other work. Mm -hmm. And that's true. It would have. Mm. But the funny thing is, is that uh, I have managed to turn that into a career. Mm. Because as it turns out, if you do it well, ethics is extremely practical. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, no one had thought of that yet. I, I think, like, and this speaking as an engineer, I think it's it's an argument for the humanities in general. I agree. Where it's in some sectors and circles or, you know, the humanities are seen as not practical. Mm. But, and, and I'm... I've kind of got in, got into humanities kind of late in life, and it's it's mm. hugely practical because mm. it teaches you about the human condition, mm. <laughs> and what could be you know more practical than that? Oh, uh, yeah. well, there's a whole space devoted to that now. UX mm. user design, user experience design. Yeah, yeah. It's so good. Mm. By hook or by crook, very very randomly, I found myself mm. working in industrial design for a while there, mm. teaching in professional ethics and industrial design to at RMIT, which is mm -hmm. a bit of a farce in itself, to be honest with you. I got that job not even knowing what industrial design was. <laughs> but, but I knew professional ethics. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, but yeah, the, it is fantastic to start seeing some of these um, silos breaking down a little. Mm -hmm. And the technology side starting to see the value in the humanities. And I hope the humanity is starting to see the value in the technology, mm -hmm. you know, because these things don't exist in silos, not in practice. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, starting to see these things recognized, the holistic approach necessary is very, very heartening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so after your master's then, what, where were you? Where were you at? Were you oh, all over the place. Mm -hmm. I did a few jobs after that. I mean, it was a little bit of struggle street at exactly that time, unfortunately, because, uh, you know, again, money got pulled out of the sector as it does. The environmental sector. Yeah, yeah the environmental yeah. sector. And so, yeah, yeah, it was job to job for a while there. Worked um, uh, with the Victorian Local Governance Association for a while on a transport project. Uh, then I worked on, bloody hell, I can, uh, with a insurance company for a couple of months to make ends meet. Mm. That was not a good job, <laughs> but interesting. <laughs> mm. And then uh, with uh, Earth Systems, which is an environmental consulting company, trying to get a sustainability assessment tool up and running there, didn't really take. But then I took off to Indonesia for a year. I worked mm. with the, uh, oh geez, what's it called now? Used to be the Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development Project, mm -hmm. part of AusAid back in the day. Um, now I think it's Australian Volunteers International or AVI. Mm -hmm. And it's not a youth thing anymore. It's just broad. 
But the idea is that's more of a capacity-building aid-based program. So mm-hmm. they'll send you over to a, a host organization, and it's more of a skill exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, in practice, it's soft power. always has been. It's like uh, DFAT's efforts to uh, improve relationships with an aim to improve our strategic interest in the mm-hmm. area. Uh, incidentally, the area I got sent to was in the middle of bloody nowhere, uh, Port Town in southeast Sulawesi. Mm-hmm. We did good work there, don't get me wrong. There was a fantastic organization over there, yeah, Fotchil Foundation, respect. Mm-hmm. Um, student group working on environmental education and management in that area. Mm-hmm. But um, the real reason we were sent there is it was uh, part of the route that uh, the refugees would take to by boat to get to Australia. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. as far as we could understand it, DFAT was looking to improve their engagement in the area. Mm-hmm. So, send in a bunch of friendly looking young people, establish a nice relationship, and then you can send in the people that are actually going to do the work. At least that's my cynical take on it. Don't know why else the hell we would have been sent there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, mm. that was great. Years international study and uh, learning another language, learning another culture. And then I came back, moved to Horsham for a year. Mm reasons i'm not going to go into <laughs> mm. bad relationship and mm. uh then came back and started up this consultancy which is what i was doing before i got this job with the police yeah uh, and i think maybe that's around the time we kind of our paths crossed yeah yeah about a year into that yeah yeah which was a bit of a meeting of the minds yeah disruptive business network well yeah <laughs> absolutely want a piece <laughs> of that yeah um no, it's been great, and, and you you've spoken at our events a couple of times, and always kind of really uh, have the crowd in the palm of your hands. With oh, yeah. man, I love the DBN. It's a perfect environment for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You guys do some incredible work exposing like new ideas to mm-hmm. people that otherwise wouldn't have come across them. Fantastic concept. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, no, it is. <laughs> no, it just is. Um, so. But but. but yeah, I think, okay, so coming back to ethics mm. now and coming back to um, how do you take something that's so, uh, for lack of a better word, you know, tangible, not tangible. Yeah, abstract, absolutely. Abstract and, uh, and also like another way of thinking of ethics is it's really kind of uh, bridging the concerns of, getting people to cooperate. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And so how do you take that and then create a framework around it or, you know, or create a, you know, create a company around it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, bloody minded stubbornness, basically. <laughs> Look, the reason I found I got to ethics in the first place and the reason I found it so compelling is for the exact opposite reason that most people think of ethics, right? You think mm-hmm. about ethics about being a good person. Mm-hmm. People think about ethics as like some sort of intangible, inscrutable monk on a mountaintop. Mm-hmm. What is right? Mm-hmm. And it is that to some degree. But at the end of the day, ethics is not that complicated. Ethics mm-hmm. is a means of making decisions. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean like the decision you should make. Mm-hmm. Again, people tend to think of ethics as either incredibly prescriptive, like right and wrong, do this. People think I'm the bloody Inquisition. Mm-hmm. Uh, unsurprising. But either that or they think of it as this ludicrously fluffy thinking that is so useless that why they even bother thinking about it in the first place. The mm-hmm. subjectivity you mentioned earlier on is exactly where people go sideways with mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. If ethics is a matter of opinion, then mm-hmm. it's meaningless, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because I have my position and that's all that needs to matter. Mm-hmm. 
really ethics is the methods by which you make decisions and determine whether they're good or not Mm -hmm. and the unfortunate reality is and part of the reason i got into this is that there is no perfect method Mm -hmm. every method that you'll employ and there's a bunch of them but the two i go to are the rules-based versus your cost benefit sort of approach deontology versus consequentialism for those who are interested in technical terms Mm -hmm. um neither of those is perfect they've both got massive gaping flaws which means Mm -hmm. that no matter which way you go about making decisions there's risks Mm -hmm. and what i was hoping to do or or what i the reason i started the business was that i was quickly identifying that people don't speak this language Mm -hmm. and yet despite that people make decisions every day Mm -hmm. we go back to that example i gave of the first job out of uni you got a situation there where a fellow is genuinely trying to do the right thing Mm -hmm. he thinks he's doing the right thing and the worst things got the more convinced he became that he was doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Now, something's obviously going wrong. Mm -hmm. Something's going badly, badly wrong because the business folded. I mean, it doesn't Mm -hmm. get a lot more tangible than that. You can say ethics is subjective all you want, but his approach failed, Mm -hmm. tangibly tangibly failed. Mm -hmm. And so how? What what happened? Mm -hmm. He did what he thought was right. And if you go back even further to my bullying example, I did what I was told. Mm-hmm. You're nice, demonstrably mm-hmm. positive characteristics blew up right in my face, didn't they? Mm-hmm. So what the hell's going on? And so you start to look at that and from a business perspective at its core is that people are making decisions using a given framework or possibly a combination without understanding what the risks are inherent to that approach mm-hmm. and therefore they're not managing them. Mm-hmm. And you get a mess. Mm-hmm. And also I think what practical decisions or economic decisions discount is externalities right that word man yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's a a trigger point for me (laughs) Uh, and and i think this is where ethics maybe comes into play because it's then it it doesn't become a simple profit and loss equation it becomes Mm. profit loss plus Mm. the common good yeah 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 mm. well this is the irony right and actually mm. economics was part of the thinking that led me to this space is that economics is in itself more or less an ethics framework mm-hmm. like you're trying to model the market mm-hmm. and the market isn't a thing it's a bunch of humans running around making decisions as for those who are familiar with the whole you know neoliberal economic theory or the mm-hmm. prevailing theory and you know economics is there is this core idea at at it called rationalism economic market rationalism Mm -hmm. which assumes that the market is making the right choices if Mm -hmm. it's left to its own devices with certain restrictions placed around it uh, because people will make the right choices for themselves Mm -hmm. and that assumes that people are fully informed consumers and And that they're rational (laughs) which which is bs no (laughs) no they're not yeah no Mm -hmm. those two things aren't even possible Mm -hmm. that's physically impossible you'd literally need to be god Mm-hmm. And no, it's just, but the intention of the method is extremely noble. If mm-hmm. it could be pulled off, it would be amazing. But like every other discipline, it has this nasty tendency to only focus on its perspective. And I mean, where is the com- where is the conversation between economists and the social scientists? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there is, I suppose, Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for blowing the theory out of the water and yeah. inventing behavioral economics. Yeah. But but I think uh, the way we operate is still under the 
the old economic model. Yeah. yeah. Well, it turned out to be very profitable for a certain number of people, didn't it? Mm. Look, again, the exception sort of proves the rule. But look, what we're aiming for here is at the end of the day, the most effective and accurate decision is going to be as fully informed as possible and as rational as possible. Mm-hmm. And those are two things that I aim to provide, mm-hmm. right? Fully informed, meaning not just what you know. Mm-hmm. Like, again, going back to that boss example, mm-hmm. there's so much information missing. He was missing the fact that it was not working mm-hmm. or at least was irrational when exposed to that information and was rationalizing what he was doing was right, even if the numbers didn't stack up. I still remember he he had a word to me in private one time and he was like, you see what most people don't understand. This is at the point in time when he was running out of his government grant and was trying to morph over to corporate work and it mm-hmm. wasn't working. Mm-hmm. He wasn't bringing in nearly enough to keep things up and his product was crap. Mm-hmm. And so every time he took on a corporate client, they would never recommend him. Mm-hmm. Word of mouth was now negative, mm-hmm. right? And he turned around to me at this stage when the writing is on the wall that clearly and a 22-year-old could figure it out. Mm. And he turns around to me and goes, most people would make the mistake of uh, leaning backwards and being conservative at this point. What you need to be doing is trying to expand. I'm sitting mm. going, you've got to be joking. Mm. But he genuinely thought that. Mm-hmm. So the irrational and not fully informed. Mm-hmm. That's what we need to avoid. Mm-hmm. Now, this can also be true for successful companies. I mean, like just because you're making a bunch of money, I mean, why? Mm-hmm. This is the first thing I'll say to a group, like a board in particular or a, an executive group, is what is the objective of your business? Mm-hmm. And yeah, of course, it's stakeholder, a shareholder profit. Mm-hmm. It's to make a profit, keep the business in operation. But man, go sell drugs. I mean, seriously, mm. heroin, mm. guaranteed audience. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, I suppose they did with the freaking opioids over in the US. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, weapons sales. Mm. Mm. Why don't you do these things? Mm-hmm. because it's not just about the money. The money's just a means. Mm-hmm. It's just, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a very important means and that comes to the power stuff I've subsequently gotten into, but it's like, what, what is the point? Mm. If you can't answer that question, what are you even doing here? How are you ever going to succeed? You don't even have the definition of success. Mm-hmm. Like, and, you know, some people jury rig it by saying money is success in and of itself. What's the money for, man? Mm-hmm. What are you going to spend it on and Why? If it's to distract yourself from the reality of the work you're having to do, mm. yeah, not great. Yeah, but I suppose it, it then it does come down to ethics being that that bridge yeah. th- that that bridges across differences differences of of opinion, and uh, and as we spoke about before, like people are different in the sense they have different value systems, you know, mm. religious or secular backgrounds mm. that kind of informs their their thoughts and their decisions. Um, I suppose uh, is your job as an ethical consultant to shatter those down and build them up anew, or or is it more, or, or is it more presenting other mental models that could benefit the common good more than what they're trying to do? Yeah. It's honestly about making sure that those frameworks that they already have are a little bit more sophisticated than what they had to begin with mm-hmm. okay so you talk about different values and uh actually a reference to another group here someone from the exact opposite end of the system for me is uh mary gentiles over in the u.s 
Uh, you may have heard of giving voice to values. Worth looking up, incidentally, for everyone. Mm-hmm. They, she comes very much from a values-driven approach to ethics, which is exactly the opposite of where I come from. I come from a very much that consequentialism. I don't believe in rules. I don't really even believe in values. Mm-hmm. I believe in consequences mm-hmm. as a measure of what is beneficial and not. Mm-hmm. But there is definitely value in what she brings to the table. And what these are complementary methods, again. Mm-hmm. And the way she puts it very cleverly is that... Um, you don't. We spend too much time in this field talking about what is right. Mm-hmm. It's not really necessary. Ninety percent of the time, people are trying to do the right thing. And you sit down with anyone's given set of values, and they're fine, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you seriously get anyone to write down their system of values, and the vast majority of time, on paper, mm-hmm. as presented, they're positive. Mm-hmm. It's when you get into the detail that things go nasty, and it's mm-hmm. not necessarily because the detail is nasty. It's because they don't have any detail. So, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. we talk around like corporate example or government example. The Victorian government has a mm-hmm. list of public service values. One of those values is accountability. Mm-hmm. What the hell does that mean? Mm-hmm. Now, you can get a definition, def- a dictionary definition of that. It's not very helpful mm-hmm. because it's similarly vague. You can, but <laughs> the government doesn't even go that far. I, I'm a freaking ethicist, man. I'm working with these guys. And I turned around at one point and went, what do you mean by accountability? Mm-hmm. Mm. And they led, well, being accountable to each other. And I'm like, I know you don't have an answer to this. Do you know how I know you don't have an answer to this? I wrote the definition of accountability. Mm-hmm. I literally did. Mm-hmm. My master's thesis was on accountability mechanisms in the Victorian parliament. And mm-hmm. to my absolute horror, I went looking for a definition of operationalized accountability. It does not exist Mm -hmm. so unless they're going to refer back to my work (laughs) you have no freaking clue what you're talking about when you talk about accountability in a corporate space Mm -hmm. it's well intentioned Mm -hmm. because anyone you ask about what is accountability they'll give you a generally good definition Mm -hmm. you know like making sure you don't hurt people without an explanation or Mm -hmm. justifying what you do but what does that mean in application? And mm-hmm. this is where shit goes sideways. Because you get into a situation where, let's say, for example, the minister comes down with something that is not good, mm-hmm. right? That has to be implemented by the public service. Mm-hmm. No, okay, so what do, So let's say we're going to do something incredibly destructive, like we're going to clear cut a state park, like we're just going to completely eliminate green space in the city of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. They could do that. There's nothing to stop them doing that apart from the threat of not being elected next time. It's four years away, there's plenty of time to recover from that. Let's say hypothetically that happens. Department has to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what does accountability mean in this context? I don't know. Like, what, no one has a freaking clue what that would actually mean. Mm-hmm. What it would mean, practically, by most people's definition, is refusing to do it. Mm-hmm. Not going to happen, is it? Mm-hmm. Unless you want to get fired, and at which point they'll employ people that will. At which point the entire value has not only not worked, it has backfired because the ethical people got punished. Mm-hmm. Not helpful. And so when you apply that to people's perspective on things, what we're trying to do here is not so much break down their belief system. It's rather to say, like, okay, articulate it for me. Let's mm-hmm. see if we can get some real detail around this. And then we can do a little bit of, not aggressive, but just basic critical analysis mm-hmm. so it's, you know the key ones for me i love doing this i, I shouldn't but i love it mm-hmm. you get people to articulate their value system right you're like here's 50 values choose your top 10 choose your top five choose your top three and the combination i'm always looking for is honesty and loyalty mm-hmm. two things on paper no one's going to disagree with everyone mm-hmm. likes loyalty it's great mm-hmm. everyone likes honesty as well that's really important mm-hmm. okay 
what if your friend asks you to lie for you? Mm-hmm. You're stuffed <laughs> because those values don't only not help in that situation. They yeah. conflict with each other. This is where the robot melts down. Right. <laughs> it's a logical... If that is as sophisticated mm. as the thinking gets, you're mm. screwed. Mm. And the general way a person reacts in that situation is they'll have cognitive dissonance and they'll either rationalize it so they don't have to think about it or they'll have a full-blown existential crisis Mm. and that's not helpful it's the sort of Mm. thing that can drive a person into a very bad place Mm. and so there's so many easy ways of working around that but people aren't equipped with them yep uh sorry i'm just keeping an eye on the time we're we're a little bit over you you have a few more minutes yeah that's fine um so so maybe just thinking about accountability again yeah so that could have a million definitions depending on the outcome. Yeah, exactly. So, so if you're speaking to someone about accountability, hmm. how would you begin to get them to understand it without defining each and every situation where they might be held accountable? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So look, put it into context is much more useful, I tend hmm. to find. But look, the way I ended up defining it is that it's got to be distinct from other ideas, right? So mm-hmm. people tend to conflate accountability with transparency. Mm-hmm. So they would view accountability, being accountable to someone is they can ask you questions and you have to answer them. Mm-hmm. It's not. That's just transparency. Transparency doesn't get you accountability. Accountability mm-hmm. is consequences attached mm-hmm. to that. Now, what my work was focusing on was finding the boundaries around that idea because it's not reasonable, for example, that someone hold me accountable for something that I didn't do to them or that was accurately ethical and therefore justified. I mean, they can ask for an explanation, but it doesn't mean I have to have consequences visited upon me, right? So the idea Mm. was to winnow it down into something that captured the idea accurately, but was also useful. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you can do this. It takes a lot of damn effort. I mean, honesty is a good one in that Mm -hmm. case. It's like, you don't, no one means complete and total un-nuanced honesty. Mm-hmm. We all tell lies. People tell lies constantly. I think the research mm-hmm. on that was that in the first 10 minutes of a conversation, a person tells an average of seven lies. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's not even lies by omission, which are substantially more frequent. Mm-hmm. But so where's the boundaries? Mm-hmm. What do you mean by honesty being a good thing? Mm-hmm. There's obviously circumstances where it happening is not a good th- like being completely honest is not a good thing i mean can't the Kantian ethics of the axe murderer thing god i hate that bloody case study mm. well i love it but i hate it for those who are uninitiated the idea Kant was very very hardcore in rights and wrongs he was mm. very much the deontologist and the idea was that you should never ever lie because it is a sin against yourself mm-hmm. and so the hypothetical he posed was that if you're downstairs in a house and a person runs into your house and says there's an axe murderer after me trying to kill me, runs upstairs and hides, the axe murderer then comes to the door and isn't going to hurt you and says, where's so-and-so? I want to kill them. Mm. You have to tell the truth mm-hmm. because to do otherwise would be sin against yourself. This is an assessment I think most of us could agree is fucking stupid. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> it is an accurate definition of the word. Mm-hmm. right? And you, you, You've got to find these conditions. And this is why I'm a consequentialist in the sense that I would weigh the ethicality of that based on the consequences it's likely to generate mm-hmm. and try and maximize the benefits for those involved, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas your values-driven sort of approach tends to be a little bit more black and white, but it still has its place because it helps prevent. I mean, in that case, loyalty is going to be super valuable because mm-hmm. that'll give you a very clear-cut and simple approach to the situation that'll lead to a maximum benefit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you see what I mean? Like, this is all not that complex in mm-hmm. theory. But when you get down to a highly complex 
operational environment. I mean, from a policing perspective, mm. my God. Mm. Imagine this. You've got a drunken disorderly out front of Flinders Street Station. You've got two guys biffing on. You get out of the car. All you know is that there's two guys pushing each other around. But the second you're out of that vehicle, you're being filmed by five, six people. Mm-hmm. There's probably CCTV. You've got no idea what caused this fight. You've got no idea what their backgrounds are. Mm-hmm. It could be anything. You've got no idea what the reaction will be to various approaches that you take. And that's completely at your discretion. Mm-hmm. Do you go in strong? Do you go in reconciliatory? Do you try and impose authority? Do you try and take a constructive approach? All of those will have different reactions. And you have no idea what that will be. Mm-hmm. You can take some guesses based on experience. You can default to procedure. But is that going to work? If you go in there with a hard and fast simplistic approach, which most people have, which is that, all right, I am police, I must be authoritative. Mm -hmm. You've immediately narrowed all of your options down to one. Mm -hmm. And is it the best one? You don't care. You're just going to do it. Mm. We've got to be better than that, you know? And we're all capable of being better than that. Yeah, so so it's this is really fascinating and uh, and also really tricky because it mm-hmm. seems that it seems that to behave in the right way you've got to have all these mental models and mental um, <laughs> scenarios kind of re- on the ready to know which one to pick, mm. and if that one doesn't work, then you pick the next one. Mm. Okay. Well, the good news is, is that you already do. Mm. You just do it intuitively. Yep. You know what I mean? Like I, I say people tend to take a more of a rules-based or values-based approach, but in reality, you do the cost-benefit thing. Mm. Okay, jaywalking, mm. you know, crossing the road illegally. You do it, I do it, everyone does it. There's all these tiny illegal things we all do. We mm. all know why they're illegal. Speak for yourself, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm well, an upstanding citizen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but like, you mm. think about that situation. You mm. don't cross the road illegally because it's in the rules. That's... Of course it's not. It's explicitly illegal. And mm. you know why? But you do it anyway. Why? Because you look up and down the road and in that moment, there's no cars coming. There's mm. no cops. Mm. There's no small, influenceable children children that you might rub off on. And so you judge the benefits as high and you judge the costs as low. You just don't mm. think about it like that. Mm. And if there's a truck coming, obviously you don't cross the road because the benefits are non-existent and the consequences mm-hmm. are absolute. Mm-hmm. Right? The trouble is, is that with this method of thinking, like I said before, there's no perfect method. It's super prone to rationalization and subjectivity. Mm-hmm. And so you think about you know, that judgment call mm-hmm. and it sounds like no one in their right mind would make the wrong judgment call because getting hit by the truck is obviously negative, but people do get hit by trucks. Mm-hmm. Right? You speed in the car, you judge the situation, you relatively benefit. I'm late for a job interview. The benefits of speeding are high. The costs are low if I'm careful. Mm-hmm said everyone who wrapped their car around a tree Mm. like it's very very prone to uh rationalizing what you want instead of what is actually true which Mm -hmm. is what we're aiming for whereas your rules-based approach hence law is um very good at dealing with rationalization because it just doesn't care Mm -hmm. i don't care what your reasons are don't Mm. do you know yeah no no it doesn't care if you really want to cheat on your partner cheating wrong Mm. do not do and it's easier Mm-hmm. You know, and it's easier to hold each other accountable to. Whereas, you know, mm-hmm. this cost-benefit approach is a very, very nuanced conversation that doesn't really survive social media, to say the least. Mm-hmm. So, you can do. In fact, we all do do this already. Mm-hmm. What my job mostly is is helping to articulate and then refine it. Mm-hmm. It's not that hard. It's just mm-hmm. you just need to practice. Okay, so, so again, going back to accountability, like mm. you, you might go into one organization and they might through your process might come up with a completely different definition to 
another organization. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it happens, doesn't it? And mm. to a degree, that's right in the sense mm. that ethics is only as useful as the context that's applied to it. Mm. Uh, you know, your principle doesn't take the practicalities into account. It's not going to be very helpful. Mm. But there's always the chance that people will disagree with me and that's fine. That's mm. perfectly fine. But again, half of the value I get from approaching things from an ethics perspective as opposed to a... Uh, practical perspective like I used to with the environmental management right mm-hmm. that was trying to solve a problem mm-hmm. but we weren't agreeing on what the problem was mm-hmm. and so my solution was ignored because they didn't agree with the foundation of the solution mm-hmm. where I'm coming at these days is very much from that foundational level mm-hmm. like from not, the bottom up oh. not just the ethics the philosophy behind it and even the yeah. metaphysics before it I can go all the way down to the foundations baby and it, most people aren't thinking on that level I never really run into resistance these days. Yeah. People don't nod their heads and by the time they realize they're agreeing with what I'm proposing on a practical level, they're fine with it. <laughs> it's kind of, it kind of reminds me of say, com- companies defining their values and there, there were two examples. One was Enron, which really came from top down. Oish, yeah. And what they had was, you know, these, these values chiseled into marble which said respect, you know, accountability, <laughs> commitment and all these grandiose things. But the behavior was com- the complete opposite to that. Mm. Like mm. down in the bottom, everyone was, you know, there was complete fraud going on. They were mm-hmm. cheating customers. They were building, you know, shell companies. And, you know, and everyone knows oh, the story. Yeah. They collapsed. Absolutely. Whereas uh, I was reading about, you know, Zappos, the shoe company that got sold to Amazon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what the founder did there was he, did, he didn't define the values for like two years. And he just wanted to see people's behavior. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And then from that, what came to the top was like number one was, you know, delighting the customer. So that was their main thing. Yeah. And yeah. anyway, so so, so it's a, it, it sounds sort of similar in the sense that it's it's consequence based rather than rather than what my feeling of mm. accountability accountability might be or honesty or loyalty or any of those. Yeah, well things. in that yeah. sense he saw what worked and then mm. established the values based around that, which is mm. yeah, it's it, it's a bit of both, honestly. And that's mm. what we should be aiming for is being able to use both methods to complement each other. Mm-hmm. I mean whereas the Enron thing, uh, well I doubt they were even engaging in good faith to begin with, but mm. like you can see a situation there where they've embraced the strengths of the method and completely mm. ignored the downsides. Mm. And there's also the added dimension in there of the power dynamic at play. And uh, well, if people want to know why ethics don't work, it's because the power wasn't taken into account. Actually, sorry, and probably don't won't have time to get into yeah, the whole thing. Of, but you wrote a book on power. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just just quickly, if you could sum up, how does power relate to ethics? Like summarize your sure. book in. Yeah, yeah. Minutes. yeah. Uh, pretty mm. much it's the flip side of ethics right like mm. and you know and like process we've talked about with my career was trying to figure out why things weren't working the way that were meant to well mm. the next step to that after i figured out the ethics components was figuring out why i still wasn't getting to do what i wanted to do mm-hmm. you would think that you know i figured out the foundations of freaking human thought you know like okay this is right this is wrong and i can prove it all the way mm. down to the metaphysics why am i not in charge mm-hmm not to sound too arrogant there but like and so i started looking into it and power is the opposite side of that power is the practicality the ultimate practicality whereas your ethics is your ultimate principle Mm -hmm. and if you can't manage both of those things you're going to be in trouble and what you see what i'm starting to see is like power has its own quirks Mm -hmm. and uh 
to take it to a political level in particular, you see this a lot. Progressives are generally speaking very, very good at ethics. Mm. Everything we do is based around what is right and we try to be as informed about that as possible. It goes sideways a lot. There's a lot of divergent thought, but that's mm. to its benefit, right? Because we internally criticize each other. Mm. I mean, if you haven't had allies jump down your throat, I mm. will be amazed. <laughs> I mean, it's part of the process, mm. but we suck at power. Mm-hmm. We suck at it. On the other hand, conservatives, fantastic at power dynamics. Mm-hmm. Liberal Party never has those internal spills that the Greens have mm-hmm. because that's what they're there to do. They're there to be in charge. Mm-hmm. They suck at the ethics, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, a conservative is always wrong because mm-hmm. eventually those ideas are going to be bypassed but or surpassed, I should say. Look, I see a lot of value in conservatism as a, in its genuine form as sort of the brakes on some of our more absurd progressive ideas but what it's turned into is a clinging to power Mm -hmm. with absolutely no regard for the ethics of the thing Mm -hmm. and we need to get better at that we need Mm. both so so when you say power is ultimate practicality do you mean that it's just the doing that counts never mind the how or the why yeah that's exactly Mm. what we were saying before when we talked about the making of the money Mm. right i'm sitting here as an ethicist in my ivory tower when do i get my tower incidentally anyway (laughs) sitting there at the ivory tower telling a business what's your point what are you here for why Mm. do you exist what's Mm. the function meanwhile they're making money Mm -hmm. right now there's value in both those things both are absolutely essential but at the end of the day there's very little denying the fact that having a shitload of money means you can do a lot more things Mm -hmm. than if you just happen to be right and don't have any money Mm -hmm. right it's the practicality it's Mm -hmm. the ability to Mm -hmm. control your circumstances Mm -hmm. which is how i ended up defining it money's not the only means to that i mean it's you know talk about the police force is obviously one of those ways hierarchy rules information technology and of course psychology which is by the far the most neglected one Mm -hmm. and therefore has the most potential but all of these dynamics need to be incorporated into our ethics and when people tend to talk about ethics as being like this fluffy idea that's what's missing Mm -hmm. it's the ability to institute the Mm -hmm. ethical outcome right Mm -hmm. make sure that it's rewarded and successful and you don't end up with the exact situation we described before where someone tries to do the right thing and the same exact situation i had in primary school Mm -hmm. we try to do the right thing and not only does it not work you get Mm -hmm. punished for it Mm -hmm. that's the exact opposite of what we want happening and the only way we're going to succeed in that is by a better grasp of that power mm-hmm. fascinating i mean we could literally talk for hours but <laughs> we literally could but but just a couple of quick questions as to like we haven't even touched on you know ethics and technology and ai and all oh that my god stuff. yeah let's do that another time. <laughs> yeah. my god, that's definitely so a whole other do. podcast but but in your work now or even while you're running your own consultancy like, what, what makes you come alive or what makes you feel alive? Ah, oh, man, you can hear the passion in my voice about this sort of thing. Mm. It amazes me. There's so much potential here. Like, I see so much. I'm so passionate about what people could accomplish. And I don't mean that in the like, oh, come and listen to the wise Gordon. Over. No, no, mm. no. You've all got your own specializations. You've all got this incredible capacity to have a in, enduring legacy on the world. Like mm. other people, we can all lift up each other up. We can all empower each other and we all do to some degree. But what I really want to see happen is everyone be able to do it successfully. Mm. You know what I mean? Which is a reflection of both the practicality 
but also the principle of the thing. And we both all tend to fall down in one of those two areas. Mm -hmm. If we can improve on both of those areas and have that full sophistication of thought, which we already do, but mm. to articulate it and then make it effective, really genuinely solid, we could do so much better than we currently are. Mm. And so, yeah, I see a huge potential there. And hopefully mm. we can see that uh, wrought through podcasts such as these. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And final question is, um, what does the term meaningful work mean to you? Work with meaning. Come on. I mean, look, that's exactly what we're just talking about in the mm. sense that people that do what they love mm. need to be able to do it in a way that sticks. Mm. You know what I mean? That is effective and powerful. Meanwhile, those who are very good at what they do, but find those sort of questions about why a little bit scary. Mm -hmm. God knows I understand that. Mm -hmm. Being able to engage with that idea and not have a full-blown crisis and not just fall apart or wander off into the wilderness, but rather to refine what they're doing to be more meaningful to themselves and meaningful to the world at large hmm. that's meaningful work in my book hmm. we can all have it we just got to work on it cool thank you so much mate thank, thank you mate. for thank you for having me it's always a pleasure no i really appreciate you you know coming all the way and you know oh please I mean, you gave me one of my uh, big starts with the uh, the disruptive business network mm. cannot recommend you strongly enough awesome Thanks heaps, mate. Thanks, until, mate. Until next time. Next time for sure, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're enjoying and are learning from this podcast, please subscribe on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. A great zero-cost way to support us is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're feeling extra generous, it would be great if you could leave a comment or feedback on our Apple Podcast or YouTube pages. Or you could email your comments and feedback to me directly at rahul at disruptivebusinessnetwork.com that's r-a-h-u-l at disruptivebusinessnetwork all one word dot com finally a big shout out to our producer dan scahill for his work on the keys and to vashti civil for writing the original music for our theme until next time this is your host rahul sohn signing off bye